The podcast will get started right after this message. This week's episode is presented by the Croatian Presidency of the Council of the EU. The May 6 EU Western Balkans Zagreb Summit demonstrated the EU's renewed commitment to the European perspective for the region. I will be setting out a comprehensive plan to explain how we can get our economy moving, how we can get our children back to school, and third, how we can travel to work and how we can make life in the workplace safer. Hi, and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. Hope you're hanging in there, whatever the state of lockdown where you are. We have a feature on our website, by the way, comparing all the measures across Europe if you want to indulge in a bit of lockdown envy. Later in this episode, remember Brexit? It's actually still a big deal for the UK and the EU, and we'll talk about it with the brand new head of the British Chamber of Commerce for the EU and Belgium, Daniel Dalton. But first, our podcast panel are ready to dive into a lockdown dilemma. What standards should politicians, professors and public health experts be held to as they guide us through this crisis? Okay, so a warm welcome to our uh, confinement companions today, Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. UK editor Kate Day in London. Hi, Kate. Hi. Uh, Chief Europe correspondent Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. So uh, we thought we'd uh, focus on a big story in the UK this week. I don't know, Kate, if you want to try and recap it or I can. Uh, either of us not using tabloid language, which it, se- which it seemed to be kind of made for. But basically the epidemiologist, one of the epidemiologists who, who advises the government, it was said that he had flouted the lockdown rules. Um, his uh, companion, lover, whatever you want to call it, had come across London to to visit him. And this was, you know, obviously a, a violation. Mistress, I think, is the technical Well, term. I think this is, mistress sounds like a very old-fashioned term, to be honest. Um, but, um, you know, this is the thing. And, and then there were all sorts of details about... Um, you know, their private lives and arrangements, which may or may not have been in the public interest, even if they were interesting to the public. But Kate, you've seen this a couple of times or a few times in the UK, right, with with public officials being kind of called out for not following the rules. What's the kind of public attitude around that? And, you know, how have they handled that kind of officials who've ended up kind of caught up in this? It's a really interesting question. I would say um, the worst sin in British politics usually it's hypocrisy. And you're seeing that quite clearly this week in that it's not, I don't think for the broader public, the details of who this professor was or wasn't having an affair with or in a relationship with. That is less part of this story for most people. It's really that he was seen as one of the key proponents of a lockdown. Um, Again, whether or not that's a fair casting of him is questionable. He certainly provided research that was crucial to the government's decision to impose lockdown. Um, But he himself is an advisor, not a politician making decisions. But he is nonetheless associated with imposing this lockdown and has been caught breaking the rules. And that hypocrisy does not play well at all with the British public. Um, We had a similar issue with an advisor in Scotland who was caught going to a second home, which is explicitly against government guidelines. And again, this was a scientific advisor, not a politician, but they were seen to be breaking the rules and they were part of the perceived team of people who had implemented the rules. So they didn't last very long and had to step down from their position too. Um, scientists are now really strongly 
pushing back on this whole situation and saying he's not somebody making the decisions. This is somebody providing advice. Uh, his private life shouldn't come into that. And isn't it crazy that at this time of crisis, we've lost one of the most expert, experienced, knowledgeable people um, because of an issue in their private life when they are not a, a public figure in that way. Um, I think the other reason this has a, a particularly big impact is that he has been one of the most visible scientists on a group of advisors who have not been visible to most of the public until quite recently and, and until some public pressure, the scientists on that committee weren't even named. Um, they were named earlier this week, but Neil Ferguson had outed himself as part of this committee some time ago and had been giving media interviews and had been one of the experts who was very visible to the public. And so I think in some ways that made his position more high profile, more prominent and put him in the eye of the political storm in a way that many scientists are quite uncomfortable with. There is this phenomenon, I think, that we've seen in a lot of countries throughout this crisis of virologists, epidemiologists becoming sort of, you know, the stars of the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And, you know, I think that that people who do seek the limelight, and it does seem that uh, Neil Ferguson was one of those people, have to be then held to a higher standard, if you will, especially if they are out there representing a certain view and are, are sort of seen as so, somebody that the society is really looking to for direction, you know, and, and so I think it's, in, in, in this case, you know, uh, fair maybe to hold him to that standard. And, and I think he was also very quick to, uh, to step down. Right? Okay, yeah, well, I would just say one of the things I find interesting about this is um, that it was a story, obviously, partly because it was considered in the public interest to report it because these stories have been, I would say, actively pursued by the media, obviously, uh, sometimes with tip-offs from, from members of the public. And I wanted to ask you in particular, Reem, where famously public officials have a right to a private life and that is kind of very strongly protected and and kind of observed by the media as well. Would this even have been a story in France if, you know, if someone had come gone to a media outlet and said, oh, I know about, um, you know, this professor and he's not following the rules? Would they have run it? Would would the French have seen it as a story in the public interest? You know, I think things are changing in the French media landscape. Um, we saw what happened with that uh, sexting uh, situation. I wouldn't call it a scandal uh, with uh, the uh, candidate for Macron's party who was running for mayor in Paris. What we have seen in France that has been interesting is a lot of talk and questioning on whether the president should be uh, moving around so much while the entire country is on lockdown. So since we've been assigned to residence basically for the past two months, Macron has left the Élysée Palace, which is a huge palace, let's start with that, um, and gone on visits. Uh, he's gone to uh, mask factories, he's gone to schools, he's gone to nursing homes, Etc. 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 Right. He even went to visit the maverick, uh, the maverick epidemiologist, right, in Marseille. He went to visit. I mean, you call him maverick. Other people call him a loose cannon. <laughs> you know, whoever or a populist. Um, he, yes, not My only. Genius. Genius, yeah. Misunderstood I, I misunderstood genius. genius. I will. I will leave that <laughs> in Matt's uh, own mouth. Um, you know, Macron took his plane to go to Marseille to meet with this doctor and. 
you know, the Élysée was asked specifically by reporters, couldn't he have just had a, a video conference call with him from the Élysée? Did he really need to get on a plane and go personally to see this man? So this is the controversy that has been ongoing in, in France. Now, of course, the Élysée says, uh, you know, it's his job to go spotlight uh, the various uh, parts of society that have kept the country going. Uh, I think that's up for debate. I think one of the other things this uh, crisis has explored or shown to the public in a way that they may not have thought about before is just how blurry the lines get between scientific advice and political advice. And I wondered how that has played in other countries. I think Matt is quite right that epidemiologists and other scientific experts have been in the limelight as sort of stars of this crisis in many senses. Um, but often their advice is conflicting and yet governments like to present themselves as following the science. They are taking the advice and they're doing what the scientists tell them. Um, then, of course, when scientists disagree, you get this really interesting collision between politics and science. And it turns out that the evidence is not just straightforward in one direction and actually every Every decision ultimately is political, whether you shut down your economy, whether you bail out parts of your economy, whether you stop people exercising in the park, that ultimately is a political decision, however good the science is. And probably the science doesn't give you a very clear answer. And I think the media, the public and politics are sort of grappled with that conundrum, certainly in the UK. And now we have a situation where a rival group of scientists have set up and they're making their advice public because they think their advice uh, deserves more attention than the official advice and the official advice is too discreet and behind closed doors. So that tension between politics and science, I think, is fascinating through this crisis. I think that was very, very clear in France, because at the beginning of this, uh, the president would meet with this advisory scientific council. And as soon as they gave their uh, recommendations, he would kind of announce a, you know, for example, lockdown uh, immediately after just saying, you know, this is what the scientists are saying. And then as this crisis kept going and evolving, uh, he started taking more time between the time of the, you know, the advisory board giving their opinion and him making a decision. And it was clear that he was also weighing other issues like the economy, which is now becoming the major issue in France. I agree. I think there's been a gradual shift from the beginning of the crisis where people were really freaked out about what was happening. And the stock response amongst politicians seemed to be, well, we have to listen to what the scientists are saying. And then they discovered slowly that the scientists themselves uh, disagree on a lot of these points, especially when it comes to what is effective, what isn't effective, what measures should be taken, which are, aren't necessary. If you just look at the debate about masks, for example, uh, just over a week ago, nobody in Germany was wearing a mask. And um, most scientists seem to be saying that they weren't necessary. And then they kind of built a consensus that, well, it's not going to hurt and masks are maybe, you know, better than not wearing them. And now everyone is wearing them. And I'm reminded a couple of times a day that I should be uh, wearing a mask. So I, I, I think that politics has taken back control of this crisis, if you will. And it's led to some rather bizarre situations, uh, including this call yesterday with Merkel and 16 uh, regional leaders, which was quite contentious at times. And one of the questions was about the Bundesliga and when they should open. And the city of Bremen, whose team is doing very poorly at the moment, yeah. didn't want to open right away. They wanted to have another week delay so that their team would have more time to practice. 
So, well, I heard they're not. They weren't fit enough. That was the allegation that Brayman's enough, exactly. team weren't fit. <laughs> I mean, you see, you know, this is this is not all uh, real science that we're talking about here, and uh, a lot no. of it is is kind of just dirty political compromise at the end of the day. Yeah, well, there's even been an allegation that somehow the French government or Macron himself tried to stop the Bundesliga because, of course, you know, France has ruled out all football till September. So this puts Paris Saint-Germain at a big disadvantage on the season when they could finally win the uh, the Champions League, possibly. But um, I think that's uh, unconfirmed at this stage. <laughs> OK, I think that's probably um, more than enough. Um, actually, we'll, let, we'll ask Kate to stick around for a second. Uh, but Matt and Reem, thanks very much. Thank you. So, Kate, um, we have an interview shortly with the new um, chief executive of the British Chambers of Commerce for uh, the EU and for Belgium. And um, obviously, top of mind for them is the uh, discussions, negotiations about the future relationship between the EU uh, and the UK. And uh, so before we get into that interview, maybe you could just give us a, a quick summary of where things stand there. Sure. Well, Brexit hasn't gone away. Uh, Most news has died down with the coronavirus crisis, but Brexit is still with us and negotiations are ongoing. Things were a bit slow to start with, partly because of sickness in both camps. Uh, Both chief negotiators ended up quarantining with coronavirus symptoms, um, but also they had technical trouble getting talks up and running. They have now succeeded and we've had a round of Brexit negotiations. Doesn't seem as though a huge amount of progress has been made, though. The sticking points very much remain um, and the two sides seem pretty far apart on key issues, including uh, the level playing field rules. These are the idea that the EU wants to be able to limit um, some of the freedom the UK has to deviate from EU rules in the long term so that it's not a competitor right on the edge of the block. And other issues like fishing, still very controversial. Northern Ireland is again proving difficult. The next looming point in this story, though, is a decision which has to be made at the beginning of July, whether to extend the transition period. The Brits are still insisting they don't want to. On the EU side, they think it's crazy not to extend. Um, They've been delayed in their negotiating. There's a lot to get through. It doesn't appear either side is going to be fully operational anytime soon. And so it seems crazy that you could stick to a timetable that in the beginning looked almost implausibly tight and now just looks pretty much impossible. Their other big concern is they they say you need to start putting in place some of the logistical things that you would need if there was a no deal at the end of this period and that needs to start happening now. And so this kind of uncertainty about where we're going is is just unhelpful from that point of view as well. Yeah, and we'll hear quite a few of those themes in the interview with Daniel Dalton, which is coming up right after a message from this week's sponsor. A message from the Croatian Presidency of the Council of the EU. Unity remains our best strategic choice. Despite the extraordinary circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic, the European Union showed that it can still make crucial strategic steps by deciding to open accession negotiations with North Macedonia and Albania. Building on this momentum, the EU Western Balkans Zagreb Summit on May 6 reaffirmed the European perspective for the Western Balkans, strengthened high-level political dialogue and social economic cooperation between the EU and the region, and show solidarity and joint effort in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
The EU Western Balkans Zagreb summit was one of the key priorities of the Croatian presidency of the Council of the European Union. We are building a strong Europe in a world of challenges. Daniel Dalton, thanks for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Just tell us a bit about your organisation to begin with, uh, you know, the membership, the profile and, and what the organisation seeks to do. So, I mean, the British chambers are, are the voice of British business in, in the EU, but also in Belgium. Um, and it doesn't just represent British businesses. So it's not just British businesses that are members. There are also many European businesses who have significant business interests in the UK who are also members. So I'd say it's the voice for British business interests in general here in Brussels. And so, you know, the organisation is looking to obviously advocate to ensure that um, we have regulations in the single market, but also the bigger trade relationship that is uh, conducive to good business relations uh, on both sides of the channel. Right. And how much more difficult is that now that the UK is outside the EU? It's going to be more challenging. There's no uh, doubt about that. We're still working and trying to understand truly how our role is going to change. And that obviously will depend on the outcome of the negotiations. And the focus up to now, a lot of the focus of the Chamber has been internally on on single market rules and regulations. Now, that will still be important, uh, increasingly so, actually, uh, for British businesses that want to come into the EU market. uh, Single market rules will be just as important as they were before. But there's also the question of how we change to to recognise the the different uh, trade relations for businesses when they're coming into the EU from outside the single market, which, of course, will be the case for many British businesses uh, now going forward. And the organisation certainly, I think, will be seeking to have more of a role in some ways similar to uh, the way the American Chamber of Commerce work as another third country. Uh, But the difference for us is, of course, the UK has been a member state for many years. There's a significant amount of institutional knowledge and understanding of how Europe works that's been built up over that time. And, you know, hopefully we can focus the chamber a little bit more on the fact that we are a third country, but we also have a a closer relationship with the European Union. We have that institutional knowledge and British business and, and Britain in general is still the biggest foreign direct investor in the EU. And I don't think that's going to change. So we'll have a slightly different role. But I think it will also be um, a role that maybe hasn't been there before. Hmm. So obviously the key thing at the moment are the the talks, the the UK-EU talks on the future relationship, uh, primarily focused on trade, but also across a range of other issues. You know, how do you feel those are going so far? And do you feel that uh, your voice, the voice of your members is being listened to as those talks take place? Well, I think most of the members of, you know, they accept now that the UK um, is not going to be in the single market uh, at the end of this process. You know, that's going to be a significant change. Now, there's no doubt that most businesses wanted the UK to remain in the single market, but that's not going to happen now. And I think most have, have, have sort of accepted that that's the way that it's going to be. In terms of the negotiations themselves, it's obviously a very tight time frame, uh, even before the, the challenges that we have with COVID-19. Um, and I think what businesses want is certainty. They want to know what the trade relations are going to be going forward. Like everyone, we're trying to, to, to get an understanding of just how those relationships are, uh, the negotiations are working, given the fact that we're in a video conference uh, environment. We know there's lots of negotiations going on. What I think we're all not sure yet is whether... 
those negotiations can be concluded in that sort of type of environment uh, without face-to-face meetings. And I think what the businesses want is certainty. Um, And what they really don't want is uh, a cliff edge where, you know, the two sides are not able to do an agreement and and the UK drops out uh, without an agreement. And then we have to piece that agreement back together in six months or in a year's time, which means two different big changes for business. Right. I mean, do you think the time frame is realistic? To, to actually, because obviously we really need to kind of know by June, right? Because then there's the question as to whether you extend the transition period or not. Look, that transition uh, time frame is very tight. It was very tight before COVID nineteen. However, I think we also have to recognise that if you're going to extend that transition, which I, I I sense is part of the inference behind your question, that needs to be for a reason. You know, if we're just extending the 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 transition because actually the two sides are a long way apart and can't get an agreement there's no point extending the transition if there's not going to be an agreement at the end of that extension of the transition because the two sides can't solve some of these you know issues where they're a long way apart if we're coming to that period where there's going to be an agreement but literally because we can't negotiate because people can't get in the same room they can't sign off the agreement i think then there's a, there's more justification to to have an extension. But from business, the key thing is we don't want to drop out without a deal. I think that's absolutely um, clear. The question, of course, is, is a deal actually viable? Now, I think the deal will be done. The question, of course, is, can it be done in the next few months that are coming? And I do think that June deadline probably is a little bit extendable. I do think you could probably actually get an agreement amongst the negotiators a little bit past June and still be able to to get it um, over the line by the end of the year. I mean, the di- big difficulty I think that everyone's a little bit worried about is actually the, the infrastructure being in place at the borders by the end of the year, given the fact that all of our um, our governments are focused on their COVID-19 response. And that is a, a concern that I think is, is increasing amongst businesses. And do you feel the voice of business um, is being listened to, has been listened to? Do your members feel that? Obviously, there was a, a fairly... Um earthy quote from uh, Boris Johnson in a previous life about, um, you know, the importance of business in the whole Brexit uh, process, if you like. In other words, basically saying that um, business should not be dictating how this plays out. Um, You know, do you feel you have the ear of people like David Frost? And and do you have any influence also on the EU side in terms of these talks and making sure your priorities are reflected? That's one of the jobs that I want to make sure that the chamber is able to do, that it is able to talk and uh, get its message across to to negotiators on both sides of the channel. And that's something that um, we really want to do. I think that the key question here, though, is, of course, you know, from a business perspective, businesses, you know, would have preferred not to have left the European Union in the first place on the whole. Not all businesses, but, but you know, the, the vast majority. I think the question is that business maybe has been out of touch with where the politics has been, because the politics, particularly in the UK, has been different. And because of that, you get some of those comments like the ones that you you, you mentioned from from the prime minister. And politics ultimately at the moment has taken precedent over business interests. And that's what happened in the referendum result. Ultimately, it was a question of economics uh, against a question more or less of sovereignty and the sovereignty won out from that. And um, unfortunately, you know, with four years later, I, I think that's, you know, still the case. And I think there needs to be a little bit of understanding on all sides that that's where we are. 
the sovereignty argument won. That's now where we're, we, we're going to have to do business within the confines of that result and that political direction from, from the British people. Um, that might not have been what businesses wanted ultimately. Uh, uh, but what we need to do is make sure that we have a relationship now that allows businesses to thrive, particularly as I think the experience that we're going through right now with COVID-19 shows that um, there is a value to um, a huge value to businesses and businesses being able to survive and thrive, uh, particularly in the next few months that come when we all try and recover our economies from this. So I think businesses will have maybe more of an influence going forward. But, you know, the end result was this whole process is a political process about sovereignty mainly and not about business. So it is hard for business to get their voice over, but it's not impossible. Right. So, And it's part of your job then also to, to kind of help businesses understand that to say listen uh, you know i know what your i know what your dream scenario was but we have to you know you have to understand the politic the politics of this is that really part of your job yes that was part of my pitch when i when i applied for the job is that you know we all would like from a business perspective the situation to be different and and you know in brussels i think many would like the situation to be different and us not to have had to embark in this process that that we've done in the last 3 or 4 years but it's happened and we now we're not going to go back from that anytime soon. So therefore, we've got to make sure that business aligns itself a bit more to understand maybe the processes behind what led to that and also to understand maybe what governments are thinking so that they're in a better position to actually be able to to influence them. And I think maybe that's what we saw a little bit over the last couple of years where I, not just businesses, but many people were, were, were sort of almost trying to refight the, the the campaign of the referendum rather than actually looking a little bit at how the future world is going to going to exist um it may not have been the world that we wanted but it's going to be there so to me it's very important that businesses sort of are able to work with an understanding of maybe what is happening in the political environment is there any particular sector um that is particularly concerned about the way things are going that would be particularly affected if if there isn't a deal and is there any particular you know overarching concern that that all of your members share the kind of thing that keeps them up at night but you know, pretty much every sector has concerns as i'm sure you can uh, imagine one of the things that um i've actually started working on quite a lot today which i think is 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 really important actually is um uh, in terms of civil and commercial law which underpins most of the other sectors so these are rules basically regarding commercial and, and civil legal judgments. They, they, it sort of covers which country's um, legal system will take precedent and allows, um, you know, those um, enforcements from those those cases to be carried out in third countries. And th- this is a real concern for our members because this is actually an area where the UK government wants to stay um in that system. But it's uh, from the European Commission side where there is a pushback against it. So um, this is, I think, one of the areas where we're very concerned about. Um, you know, we obviously want to see a deal uh, on, on, on goods. We want tariff-free trade wherever possible. We want a deal on financial services, which is, of course, very important for, for both sides. But I think the key thing from the Chamber is, you know, we are looking to make sure that we want to have an agreement that uh, benefits both sides, works for both sides, works for companies that are on both sides of the channel. Got it. Another question. I believe you were previously a, a professional cricketer, and I wondered if you had a kind of cricketing analogy for where we are in the, um, in the you know in the UK EU talks. You know, like uh, I'm not a cricket expert, but um, 
where are we in the match, if you like, or, or the test series, if that's what it is? And, uh, you know, what are the tactics for making sure, you know, we end up, I guess, in, in this case, maybe we want to end up with a draw, right, for both the UK and the EU to feel they've done okay? Well, I'm glad you said that last bit, because I was a little bit worried up to there that, that, again, this was being presented as a confrontation that you've got to have a winner and a loser, which is one of the things that worries me about the whole discussion of Brexit is that it's always been one side can't get something because therefore the other side is is, is perceived to be a loser. And I think that is completely the wrong approach to, to this. You know, I would say uh, probably a, a good analogy here is when um, you have uh, two to win off the last ball uh, and you get one and get run out going for the second, <laughs> which means it's a tie. And and everyone can go away uh, happy and uh, have a drink in the bar afterwards and uh, and, and be friends and uh, have a good relationship going forward. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. We really appreciate those of you who've taken the time to rate the podcast and leave us a review. If you haven't done that yet, we'd be very grateful if you did. And also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. We'll be back on Monday with a report from Sweden, which has, of course, made headlines around the world for its unusual approach to the coronavirus. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.